Hi, you're listening to The Inoculation. One evening, over a plate of assorted Greek food in Valletta, my friend and I were discussing how restaurants and bars have reopened, when suddenly our chat was interrupted by a demonstration against vaccine mandates. The demonstrators carried posters calling for freedom. In Malta, 90% of residents over 12 years old have already been vaccinated, so demonstrators like these are not convincing a lot of people. But whatever policy a country has, from demanding that children wear masks to imposing vaccine mandates for employees with a lot of contact, various groups will demonstrate and say that their freedom is at stake. They will also form some unusual alliances. Welcome to the Inoculation Podcast, where we explore the intersection of vaccine denial, technology, and politics in depth. Today, we're back with episode 13, with a roundup of some of the most interesting things that we read, listened to, and looked at in the past week. And talking about reading, you can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter. And I think Daiva will drop a link into the show notes. Yep. People have been publishing very interesting stuff about how vaccine denialism is shaping our lives. On last week's episode, we heard about why vaccine mandates might not work in the long run. We can link to that episode, but first let's have a short listen. And then I think the compulsory vaccination policies in Europe have been quite complex in the reasons and yeah intricacies of the law and policy. So drawing parallels there might be also a bit tricky. So these interviews took place from November last year to January this year. And that was a time when mandates were still largely hypothetical. So now that we do have mandates in some countries, such as France, let's take a look at what's happening. Have we lost our freedom or is this claim just another piece of disinformation? So do vaccine mandates work? Join me, Eva von Schaper, and my colleague, Diva Repitschkaita, as we comb through research to find out what you can do and what our governments can do to stop the spread of disinformation. We just want to take a minute to welcome our new listeners. Hello, and thank you for your interest. If you like our show, please tell your families, your coworkers, and your neighbors. That's right. If you know of someone who might enjoy this show, just pick up your phone, you know it's right next to you somewhere, and text them the link right now. We really need your help to get the word out about our show. Okay, so let's jump right into the roundup. I know I've been slacking off from this project to meet another deadline, but you've been reading a lot, right? Right. Here's a study on mandatory vaccinations that I was talking about. Vaccine passports may backfire. Findings from a cross-sectional study in the UK and Israel on willingness to get vaccinated against COVID-19. That's a long title. Yes, it is. So what they do say is that we have domestic vaccine passports and they're being implemented across the world as a way of increasing vaccinated people's freedom of movement and to encourage vaccination. However, these vaccine passports may affect people's vaccinations decisions in unintended and undesirable ways. So what they did is they looked at almost 1,400 people in Israel and the United Kingdom, and they saw that 
what they call need frustration or autonomy frustration was associated with a lower willingness to get vaccinated and with a shift from a self-determined to external motivation. So they compared Israel, which is a country that has vaccine passports, with the United Kingdom, which is a country that doesn't have vaccine passports. And they found that in Israel, people reported a greater autonomy frustration than in the United Kingdom. So what does that basically mean? What they said their finding was, our findings suggest that control measures such as domestic vaccine passports may have detrimental effects on people's autonomy, motivation, and willingness to get vaccinated. Policies should strive to achieve a highly vaccinated population by supporting individuals' autonomous motivation to get vaccinated and using messages of autonomy and relatedness rather than applying pressure and external controls. That sounds really interesting and reasonable. So what they're basically saying is that humans need to feel in control of their actions and when they don't, they are less likely to follow through with them. And here's what the researchers also said, and I'm quoting the study. People who are amotivated or who feel pressured are unlikely to build good and trusting relationships with local governments and health authorities, relationships that are crucial for public health adherence and behavior change to occur. Moreover, need frustration can damage people's well-beings, so need frustrating policies might add to the already heavy burden of the pandemic on people's mental health. It is therefore important for governments and policymakers to apply health and risk communication that enhances basic psychological needs, such as creating an autonomy supportive healthcare climate and building a caring and trusting relationship with the public. Yes, but in our previous episode, we also found how vaccine mandates could help in, or be the solution in the short term. We'll link to it in the show notes. This week, we had a reminder that although a lot of disinformation and misinformation is spread via social media, its effects are sadly felt in real life. In Germany, where I live, a man was killed by a customer who was upset with Germany's mask mandate. That's really tragic. Gas station worker in the town of Eder Oberstein was killed after a dispute with a customer over COVID-19 measures, according to a report on Deutsche Welle. So according to a police report, a 49-year-old man is suspected of having shot a gas station employee this weekend over a mask-wearing requirement at the gas station. So the killer is said to have entered the gas station to make a purchase without wearing a face mask. And the 20-year-old employee asked him to comply with the regulation. And allegedly, the two got into an argument, which prompted the maskless man to leave. But according to the police, the man is said to have returned roughly an hour later. This time, he was wearing a mask, but he took it off, and the two men started another argument. The suspect then pulled a concealed revolver out of his pocket and shot the 20-year-old old. Do we know more about this case? There have been a lot of reports in German media, and now German politicians are saying that the right-wing political party, AFD, has contributed to the radicalization of the Querdenker scene. Okay. Who are the Querdenker? The Querdenker, there's basically a loose grouping which includes pandemic skeptics, anti-vaxxers, and anti-lockdown protesters. 
They claim that the COVID-19 pandemic and the federal and regional laws that are aimed at halting the spread of the virus infringe on citizens' liberties. This sounds a lot like what Alice of Oxford told us earlier this year. What I'm thinking, and it's, it's since I, I sort of, I started organization, political organization, I think what might happen, you asked me a question about COVID, right? COVID and the COVID-related groups and organizations and conspiracies that emerged during this period. I think that those groups uh, now just gained audience. And over time, they might be hijacked by different actors, not necessarily those people who established them. For instance, anti-vax groups might, with time, change, uh, say, the speaker. And they might be united around, mobilized around a different idea. Some radical idea, some out, another outrageous conspiracy, like in the US, it was a conspiracy of stolen election. Right? Similar thing can happen in Germany. Who knows what it can be? I have no idea, really. But it can be anything. The damage here, the potential damage is the emergence of audiences that are united in echo chambers on internet, not necessarily on big platforms, but on alternative platforms like Telegram. And those communities are already there and they're waiting for disruptive political actors to come and hijack them. This might happen. Yes, and that's eerily right on the nose, isn't it? Exactly. Oh, and here there's just another really interesting story on the markup where they took a look at how this right-wing political party, AFD, is posting on Facebook. What about them? Well, the AFD is not very big in Germany, but they've been remarkably successful on Facebook. So the markup obtained data through a project that's called the Citizen Browser Project. It shows how the AFD has gained tremendous traction on Facebook um, in the run-up to this weekend's election, in which the German parliament and thus the chancellor, Germany's chancellor, will be elected. Well, the Citizen Browser Project collects data from a diverse panel of 473 German Facebook users. It shows that the party and its supporters have peppered Facebook with pages promoting its ideology. Posts on those pages appearing in our panelists' newsfeed at least three times as often than those from any rival party. Do we know how the AFD is so popular on Facebook? Well, according to the markup, the AFD and its supporters, they run more active pages. They set up really small localized pages that garner support across the country. And also the AFD, and I think this is especially important, um, relies more on sensational, aggravating content. And this is a perspective that Facebook rewards with greater reach. So, for example, one recent AFD post was uh, about so-called climate hysteria led to more than 5,000 angry face reactions on Facebook. This story seems to be repeating itself over and over again, right? Yes, you're right. And I really would recommend that anybody who's interested in Facebook and the problems that Facebook had read um a story that was published or a series of four stories that were published by the Wall Street Journal that looked deep inside Facebook. The Wall Street Journal found a trove of internal documents and from that they wrote four stories. Uh, the stories are behind a paywall but um, there are also four podcasts that are accessible on Spotify and wherever you want to listen to podcasts. Um, they're really, really interesting. 
So one thing I thought was really one point, there's a lot of information in these stories. And one thing that I thought was really interesting was, for example, that, that Facebook basically shielded the high profile users like celebrities, politicians um, from the site's rules and protected them from the enforcement of these rules. And the company does all of this in secret, even though Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg has said that all users are treated equally. Um, I took a look at the podcast transcript. What I really found shocking when I looked at the transcript was, for example, that content that definitely violated Facebook's rules was viewed 16.4 billion times. That's billion, not million. So that's 16.4 billion views of things like hate speech, racism, revenge porn, and graphic violence. And among those posts, there are also anti-vaccine and anti-mask posts. And um, the number is so huge because these are very high-profile accounts with a huge number of followers. Okay, so Facebook is in some hot water, right? Well, I think the public perception of Facebook right now is not that positive. Um, and the New York Times tech reporter Shira Ovid suggested that maybe Facebook should not be present in countries in which it can't regulate its posts. So, for example, what she said was maybe it's time for the company simply to leave countries like Myanmar and Azerbaijan until it devotes the same level of money, attention and cultural competence to its presence in those places as it devotes to, the, to its presence in the U.S. and France. And she says, you know, Facebook is far from perfect, even in rich countries. Does this apply to vaccine misinformation as well? That's something that Shira Ovi didn't mention. And it really is hard to imagine how Facebook would just stop publishing posts about vaccine information, because I guess it's easier to leave a country than it would be just to exit uh, a whole subject. So while the thought might be correct. It's it's hard to see how Facebook could do that. Oh, but Daiva, you've been reading quite interesting things too, haven't you? Well, I just jumped into a survey data rabbit hole. The John Hopkins Center for Communication Programs has launched a vaccine intentions dashboard where you can compare countries, age groups, and education levels. And what did you learn? That people who remain unvaccinated in Europe mostly worry about side effects. Over a half of people who are not vaccinated currently, pointed to that reason when they were asked why they wouldn't get their jab. Two in five wanted to wait and see, and nearly a third believed for one reason or another that they do not need a vaccine. And why, I mean, did, did that research say why people don't believe that they need a vaccine? Well, some of them do not consider themselves to be members of a high-risk group. That explanation is especially widespread in the Netherlands. But in five countries, a fifth or more of the unvaccinated simply did not think that vaccines as such are beneficial. And in which countries is that? All five are Central and Eastern European countries. Uh, for example, your home country, uh, Lithuania in the Baltic states? Nope. Uh, the survey didn't include any of the Baltic states. But for example, I found Slovakia, where our colleague Lukas told us in episode eight of this podcast, that introducing the Russian Sputnik V vaccines didn't quite help the country to overcome vaccine hesitancy. Uh, according to some polls, it's around 30% who don't want to get vaccinated. And they are mostly um, influenced by um, disinformation by far-right parties, which are messenger of this disinformation in Slovakia. 
Right, that's interesting. And what else was interesting in the dashboard, Daiva? It was troubling to see that a third of the unvaccinated in Finland have tried to get a vaccine, but didn't. What could have happened there? Um, do you think they weren't able to book an appointment or maybe they live too far from a healthcare provider? It's not clear, but half of unvaccinated respondents living in small towns or villages face that problem. So there might be an access issue there. Finland is a large country. Did any other countries have that same issue? Only Spain and Portugal had more than a quarter of unvaccinated residents saying they tried to get a vaccine. Okay, that's very interesting because that does tell us that not all unvaccinated people are unvaccinated because they're actually vaccine hesitant, right? Seems to be the case. And what else did you read? So you remember we talked about demonstrations uh, mentioning freedom when they oppose uh, vaccination policies? Yes, of course. So The Economist, a liberal publication, came out in favor of US vaccine mandates comparing the recent COVID-19 death counts to 9-11 and suggesting that, I quote, in democracies, public health sometimes requires coercion, end of quote. Their piece referenced a ruling from uh, 1905 of the US Supreme Court, which established that despite freedom to refuse treatment, I quote again, you are not thereby free to infect other people, end of quote. According to The Economist, The Delta variant is too infectious to handle without mass vaccination. Also, elderly people are dying with waning immunity, hospitals are overwhelmed, and treatment of the unvaccinated is costly. And another quote from this article, For all those reasons, your choice over vaccination is everyone's business. They also said that in France, demanding vaccine passports in social situations has not only boosted the country's vaccination rate, but curiously reduced vaccine hesitancy, according to a survey in August. Okay, that's very interesting. And I also just wanted to point to this uh, very fascinating article on Tech Policy Press about online wormholes, and it basically shows how scientific publishing is weaponized to fuel COVID-19 disinformation. How would that work? Well, what the article says is that decentralized, fragmented, and open access online scientific literature systems provide opportunities to manipulate perceptions around scientific evidence and conclusions. So for example, if somebody shares hyperlinks to scientific papers with a request from the user to do your own research, you have a position that is similar to the notion of wormholes in science fiction. So they transport the user between Facebook, Twitter, and other messaging and social media apps, jumbling science and facts in transit. I've seen one of these WhatsApp messages uh, with a link to a scientific paper and a sentence taken completely out of context. So I can see that how this would waste a lot of time if we had to verify uh, these links each time. Yes, it's definitely something we should look into in uh, maybe one of the future episodes. Let's make a note of that. I just wanted to remind you that everything we talked about, all the all the studies and newspaper articles, will add links to them so that you can find them if you want to take a look for yourself. We'll add a transcript of this show to our website, www.theinoculation.com, if you prefer to uh, read about these things. If you want to hear more stories about vaccine hesitancy, you can look up the inoculation 
wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter, Inoculated. The link is in the show notes. You can follow us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. Our reporting is supported by journalismfund.eu, Media Lab Bayern, and Topfish System. Bye for now.